Hey, I don't remember this line from the movie. Uh, oh, okay. Orion, Orion is bankrupt now. Okay, well, hello. I'm Al Yankovic, co-writer and star of UHF. And I'm Jay Levy, and co-writer and director of UHF. And also my manager since 1981, right? It's a true thing. Wow. Ah, oh, that's my butt. I think your butt? That, that's it right there. I, I wish we could have had a nice, clear blue sky when we were shooting this, but that didn't happen. Now, if we had any kind of decent post-budget, we could have just matted that right in there. <laughs> that's my favorite part of the movie. Oh, the marketing department at Orion changed the UHF logo after these titles were made, so we still have the old logo here in the opening credits. We should talk a little bit about how you came to direct this movie. Um, as I remember it, since you were my manager, you carefully looked at all the directors available for this project, and after giving it a lot of thought, you decided the best choice would be you! Well, the fact <laughs> is, nobody else wanted to do it, you know? Anyway, um, at the time I thought having you as a director made sense because you wrote the script with me, so you were already familiar with the story and the characters and the gags. Plus, I knew that if we ever had a creative disagreement on the set, I would easily be able to beat the living crap out of you. Yep. I remember once during Wheel of Fish I had you in a headlock and you were starting to pass out a little bit. Oh, okay, watch this. You'll notice that the guy's left arm falls off, but on the ground it's his right arm! How'd that happen? I guess. He, he was never the same after that. No. I, I guess there was some kind of communication mix-up between you and the prop department. Uh, they had rigged the left arm sleeve to fall off, but they supplied us with a fake right hand. And we didn't have time to reshoot it, so... Well, I guess we needed something for the gaff watchers to spot anyway. How are you remembering these things? <laughs> I was there! You know, it feels like it was only 12 years ago. <laughs> now, these aren't real cobwebs. No, they're actually thousands of professionally trained spiders that we had, you know, to create that. That's where the budget went. That's right. My goodness. Uh, we're using the same font, or pretty much the same font as in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Look. Ancient sacred Hovito symbol. That's a joke right there. <laughs> what a gag. Now, that's a look of determination if I've ever seen one. You know, those acting lessons paid off. Man. One take, Al. <laughs> uh, what else can we say? The, the movie's 97 minutes long. It's in color. It's a talkie. What else do you need to know, really? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Watch out! Look out! Look out! Look out! Look out! That's got to hurt. All that these, was a real train. <laughs> all these scenes were shot at Introvision in Los Angeles, uh... The uh, team was Bill Mesa, Marcus Tate, Ron Yates, and Tim Donahue. Most of these sets were done uh, in miniature, and they magically placed me in the frame later. I think this is, yes, this is, you know, actually, this is the sign gag, which went on for about five months too long. I think we kind of get the joke already. Okay, we get the joke, and cut, and cut. I, I think we figure that people are actually reading the credits. <laughs> so, is that what we were thinking? <laughs> this is well, speaking of the credits, you know, earlier they just showed, uh, they just had Gray Fredrickson's credit. Who? Gray Fredrickson. Gray he Fredrickson. Was, he was interesting. He was our executive producer, and he also worked with uh, Francis Ford Coppola. That's right. In Tulsa, which is why we ended up in Tulsa. One of the reasons, yeah. David Lewis, who uh, went on from this movie to uh, be the DP for... Uh, Children of the Corn 5, as well as 
Leprechaun 4 in space, and the Carrot Top vehicle chairman of the board. Oh, you know, one of the scenes that got cut out of here was uh, me hearing a phone ringing, a payphone ringing on the side of the wall, and I pick it up, and there's a voice going, No, don't go in there! No, no, don't go in there! No! Yeah, what happened to that? That's gone. Not wacky oh, enough. Oh, man. Now, this isn't an actual Oscar, because at the time, I guess we could approximate an Oscar, but we couldn't really get that close to it because the, uh, you know, the Academy wouldn't let us. And then the, the year after we did the movie, I think they kind of uh, made that a moot point. They said that you could use a likeness of an Oscar. I think. Is that what you I remember? Re I don't remember that. I did definitely remember we couldn't use it at the time. Right. So here's this funny-looking Oscar guy. Actually, I think they should change the Oscar to look like that. Francis Ford Coppola came to the set when we were shooting this, remember? He had just done a Tucker, and he wanted to check out Intervision. Yeah. And he was hanging out. That was, yeah. that was cool. Susan Dwarman was the special effects producer and post-production coordinator on all our fantasy sequences here. She also worked with us on the fat video. She actually won a Grammy he for the fat video. produced the fat video, yeah. That's right, yeah. That's right. David Lewis, of course, shot the fat video. Mm-hmm. We like to keep it in the family. We like that. You're doing your own stunts here, too. <laughs> Amazing. Man of many talents. This was a shot at the Sweetwater Ranch, 32502 Agua Dulce Road in Agua Dulce. No way! It was! <laughs> How did you do that? You know, this is what you call your low-budget special effects. Stunt guy! I, we had a whole <laughs> series of these gags, some of which we shot and some of which we didn't. I think in the original script we had me like running through a crowded department store while the ball follows me down the uh, escalator. And coming up here is the flattened face, which I still have in my garage. There it is. Ew. And then the ever popular dissolve to a close-up of a hamburger. Oh, there's a flattering shot. Oh, there's my old moles. You know, I had my moles removed at some point during the filming of UHF, so in some scenes you see moles on my face and some you don't. So keep an eye out for that. There's David Bowe, of course. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, movie databases list his credit as David Bowie. So sometimes you'll see David Bowie's movie credits as, you know, the man who fell to earth, UHF. <laughs> David did a ton of uh, national commercials. Uh, after UHF, uh, and also appeared in a number of movies, um, like uh, A Few Good Men, where he actually did a scene with Jack Nicholson. That's pretty cool. Because of our astronomical budget here, you'll notice we couldn't have any uh, re reverse shots of uh, crowds in a busy uh, restaurant because uh, we had to limit our angles. There's Big Edna. It wasn't so big, actually. <laughs> well, she was local talent Nancy Johnson. We wanted, like, an actual actor. Like, I thought it'd be cool to get, like, the, the woman that p played, uh, like, Beulah Ballbricker from Porky's. Like, you know, a real uh, domineering, scary person. And we just didn't have it in the budget to fly somebody in. So we just had this nice, nice lady <laughs> playing Big Edna. And this is uh, the Tulsa Pump Company, from what I remember. I think this was at 114 West Archer. And name that car. That's a late 50s Nash Metropolitan, one of my favorite kinds of cars. I used one of those cars years later in my video for It's All About the Pentiums. 
Just bash my head right in. Go ahead, really, please. Just, just bash it right in. Oh, George, this is you know needlessly violent. You still owe me five bucks. And coming up here, Getty Watanabe. Yay! You may recognize Getty. He played Long Duck Dong in 16 Candles. He was Kaz Kazahiro in Gung Ho, and he's Nurse Yash Takata on ER. For some reason, he always gets cast as the Asian guy. One of the all-time great guys. And the famous Twinkie Wiener sandwich. This is legendary. In the annals of Al Lore, this is right up there. By the way, uh, Burger World was uh, the old Hardens at 6835 East 15th. Uh, I'm told Mike Judge is a fan of UHF, and uh, the Burger World mentioned in Beavis and Butthead was kind of an homage to UHF. Um, I, I think I ate about seven Twinkie Wiener sandwiches during the course of this scene. I didn't turn vegetarian until a couple years later. Uh, you can hear Cooney's karate class practicing next door. We, we cut out a short scene just before this where George tells Cooney he's going to be late with the rent, which was our way of letting you know that Cooney is supposed to be George's landlord. But that's not really critical information now, is it? I, I think Francis Ford Coppola used this part of town when he shot The Outsiders. You know, this, this movie came out uh, about the same time as Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is why if you watch the uh, teaser trailer on this DVD, the whole teaser trailer is meant to look like a trailer for Indiana Jones. We kind of pull a little switcheroo there. You thought it was going to be Harrison Ford, and yet it was not. And here we are in Terry's apartment, which you may recognize as 4322 East 66, apartment K. The lovely Victoria Jackson. Vicky, of course, uh, had a long successful run on NBC's Saturday Night Live, and she was also featured in uh, Baby Boom, Family Business, Couch Trip, and she had a starring role in Casual Sex with Leah Thompson. And had a hard time keeping a straight face right there, by the way. <laughs> she also has uh, made over 40 Tonight Show appearances, and we're still very close friends. Maybe we'll talk to her a little later. Who knows? Uh-oh, here comes a reference. Yeah. This is a reference to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I know that 98% of you right now are going, No, duh! But I still want to try to point out even the obvious TV and movie references, just in case there's any Amish people out there that just got a DVD player. This is important. Wah, wah, wah. And now we're at Uncle Harvey's. This was a 6636 South Knoxville. No way! It was! By the way, for people who noticed, we, we love the word Harvey, the name Harvey. We use Harvey the Wonder Hamster, and we have Uncle Harvey... There's two examples right there. Two examples right there. Well, that comes from an old pal of ours, Harvey Lee. That's right. From Epic Records. Now, that was the cheek pull gag we just saw. This was shot before CGI was all the rage, so uh, what we did instead was we glued a hard rubber piece on my face that was in the shape of a grotesque distorted cheek. So it never actually stretched. It was just kind of a little sleight of hand there. Hmm, looks like a little product placement here, Jay. Is this a light beer commercial? Uh, Uncle Harvey is played by the great Stanley Brock, who was a successful character actor in movies and television for many years. We were basically looking for Danny DeVito, only taller and cheaper. He was dying from the smoke. We wanted it to be a smoke-filled poker game, you know? So we kept pouring in the smoke. 
Oh, <laughs> this dog right here, this was, a, this was a professionally trained dog, but for whatever reason, we could never get it to do what it was supposed to do. The, the, the idea here was that the dog was supposed to do like a little dance on his hind legs and, and jump into the punch bowl. I mean, what dog wouldn't do that? What dog wouldn't want to do that? And uh, we did take after take after take, and the, the dog just wouldn't, you know, hit his mark. And we were running out of time, so finally... Uh, <laughs> I just threw the dog in the punch bowl, and that seemed to work. Works for me. Uh, Sue Ann Langdon uh, is a, uh, another veteran of the stage and screen. She was uh, in General Hospital for a long time, as was another one of our stars, Anthony Geary. And she also did a couple movies with Elvis, uh, Frankie and Johnny and Roustabout, as did Billy Barty. So look at the synchronicity here. Amazing. We used to have a long, pointless expository scene here where Harvey talks me into running the station for him. But we only like long, pointless scenes if they're funny, and this one wasn't, so goodbye. No, not him. Forget it. No way. Cut two. <laughs> and here's the Nash Metropolitan again, and we're about to see the U62 exterior for the first time, which in reality is the KRAV transmitter at 49th West Avenue in Edison, which of course is currently the KGTO AM 1050 transmitter. But you all knew that. Now, if my research is correct, the last time this building was used as a radio station was in the mid-70s when KRAV-FM 96.5 played beautiful music. Fascinating, eh? In just a second, we're going to see uh, Vance Colvick Jr., who plays the bomb. Vance is actually part of a comedy dynasty. His father was Pinto Colvig, who was known as the Dean of Hollywood Voicemen. Among other things, he was the voice of Goofy and Pluto in the Disney cartoons. Kolvig also toured for a while with the great Spike Jones, and he's widely credited as being the very first Bozo the Clown. You may recognize Vance from bit parts in movies like Barfly and Big Top Peewee, or maybe even from David Lee Roth's video for Just a Gigolo, where he appeared in drag. Very scary. We, uh, I think we originally talked about having Tracy Walters being the bum. He'd done a similar role in Repo Man, and we had a lot of interesting people coming in to read for the role. Remember, uh, Ginger Baker from Cream <laughs> actually came in to read for the part of that the bomb. That was an amazing thing. That's very odd. Um, this interior here of Philo's workshop is actually Jimmy Houston Productions at 4466 South 74th East on the UHF tour. Uh, Philo is named after Philo T. Farnsworth, whom many people consider to be the inventor of television. Can I help you? And there's Anthony Gary. Who are you? I'm Philo. When uh, Anthony came in to uh, read for the role, we had doubts, to say the least. We weren't really looking for a soap opera star to play Philo. We were looking at, you know, more odd types. In fact, we had offered the role to Joel Hodgson, who at the time was kind of a madcap inventor, stand-up comedian. But he said he was just kind of burnt out on showbiz, and he turned it down. Of course, a couple of years later, he went on to create Mystery Science Theater 3000. But uh, Anthony came in to read for it. And uh, we actually kind of read him as a favor. Our casting director said, ah, just give him a shot. And he came in and he blew us away. He had this hilarious deadpan read. Uh, he's a really terrific underrated actor. The Interocitor is a reference to a prop used in the 1954 movie, This Island Earth. Yeah. It works. And my hair stayed like that for three weeks. We're back to the U62 exterior here. That's John Dupre doing the score. Of Monty Python fame. Yeah, he did the, the score for A Fish Called Wanda and Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, and he also went on to do the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. And that's actually me singing the doo-wah parts along with, uh, with my band. 
We originally were talking to Wendy Carlos about doing the score. Wendy and I had just done a recording of Peter and the Wolf together, uh, but somehow I, I guess things didn't work out. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is the amazing Fran Drescher. Besides being the nanny, Fran's had a number of memorable film roles, including Bobby Fleckman in the classic This Is Spinal Tap. She first appeared on the big screen in 1977's Saturday Night Fever, where she had a racy little scene with John Travolta. And 20 years later, she starred in her own vehicle, The Beautician and the Beast. Fran was just perfect for this role. She, she came in to read for the part, and um, after hearing her talk for about 10 seconds, we just gave her the job. We're actually on a soundstage in a shopping mall in Tulsa right now. That's where we did all the interiors for Channel 62 and Channel 8, but I'll get into that more later. Coming up here, Crazy Ernie. This is uh, John Cadenhead. Uh, and oddly enough, we were talking about casting a Crispin Glover in the movie, and we thought he'd be good for Philo, and he read the script, and he said that the only part that he would be interested in playing was Crazy Ernie. And uh, we loved Crispin, but we just somehow couldn't see him in the role, so we had to pass on that. Now, this was supposed to be a baby harp seal, actually, for the joke to work, and for some reason we wound up with a circus seal. Um, but there you go. Oddly enough, we shot the crazy Ernie scene at Ernie Miller Pontiac at 4700 South Memorial in Tulsa, all except for that seal shot, which was done in Los Angeles. Uh, more useless trivia, the, uh, in the original, original draft of UHF, Pamela's name was Pamela Taylor. Also, Terry's last name was Terry Moore, and then we changed it to Terry Campbell, and Bob's last name was Bob Steckler. But then we never actually used their last names in the movie, so they just became Terry and Bob. That's okay. I'll, I'll take it over myself. It'll be a good chance to meet the competition. <laughs> I like the Foley you know, crash sounds every time I set the package down here. I don't really think that's such a good idea. I heard he's not the nicest guy in the world. Oh, come on. Here's he can't a be all push that, in man. for dramatic impact. You just got to know how to talk to those guys. Cut two. And here's Kevin McCarthy. Like Kevin's made nearly 100 movies so far in his career, um, including Inner Space and the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1956. And he also did a great uh, Twilight Zone episode called Long Live Walter Jameson, which is kind of a Dorian Gray kind of story where at the end he ages a couple hundred years. And the weird thing is, like, for a split second during the aging process, he looks just like he did during the filming of UHF. Send in the janitor. I'm going to get to the bottom of it. He was 74 at the time of shooting. And sitting in the middle there is John Paragon from Pee-wee's Playhouse. John B. the Genie and uh, Terry. And Michael Richards. You never really heard much about him after UHF. He just kind of dropped off the map, didn't he? That was a shame. He's a funny guy. The funny thing about Kevin McCarthy was he'd play this really, really evil guy and be over-the-top nasty, and then as soon as Jay said cut, he'd just laugh, laugh his head off. He had a great time. He had a wonderful time. Uh, John Paragon was also the breather on Elvira's TV show. In fact, he worked a lot with Cassandra Peters, and he wrote uh, her movie Mistress of the Dark. Uh, and now he's a director in his own right. He did some episodes of Silk Stockings and quite a few other things. And, of course, he was Ramon Azteca, the Latin lover with the obscenely large pompadour. No, sir. No, um... Were you in here cleaning up last Making night? an appearance as that character on Welcome to the Fun Zone. We should talk about why we chose Tulsa as the place to shoot the movie. I think we were originally considering like three different cities. Do you remember what those were off the top of your head? I really don't because it was mostly Gray. Gray Fredrickson, our executive producer, is saying, look, I've shot in Tulsa and the people are great and they're very friendly and we need to save money and let's go and check it out. Well, I think another big reason was the Kensington Galleria at 71st and Lewis. 
Uh, it was this massive shopping center with a brand new wing on the second floor that they had just built and they hadn't rented it out to anybody yet. So it was perfect. We used all that unoccupied space to, to build the sound stages for the interiors of both Channel 62 and Channel 8. And it was great because, you know, whenever we needed some props or wardrobe, we could just walk over to the part of the mall that was open for business and pick them up. And not only that, but the hotel was actually connected to the Galleria, so we never had to leave the building. We'd walk from our rooms to the set, and it was kind of like we were like in a hamster habit trailer or something. We just never left the building. Here's me meeting RJ for the first time. Now, for this gag to work, the camera was supposed to stop when everybody else in the building stopped. Hey, RJ! Right there! Oh, but the camera keeps moving. Oh! I think we didn't have a video tap on the camera, so we didn't realize until we watched dailies that the shot really wasn't right. <laughs> was it common that that video tap on movies in those days? or I think it was hit and miss. Yeah. Well, I forgot to mention that our DP, David Lewis, also went on to uh, do the movie Pucker Up and Bark Like a Dog. Trespassing, huh? Oh, he's a mean guy. Another interesting factoid... Uh, this building where we shot these interiors is now the TV Guide building. Gee, look at the time. Well, gotta go. Now, one of my heroes is Tom Lehrer, and he's apparently a big fan of UHF. He told me that uh, his favorite line is, people like that should be put to sleep. Now this, the elevator scene, was actually shot at uh, the Hewlett-Packard building at 66th and Lewis. It's the same building that we used for the exteriors of Channel 8. Oh, Michael Richards. Oh, it's all coming back to me now. Yes, of course, he won several Emmy Awards for his uh, extremely successful eight-year run on the NBC sitcom Seinfeld as Cosmo Kramer. Uh, he was recently in The Michael Richards Show and uh, has appeared in movies like Problem Child, Trial and Error, Unstrung Heroes, and uh, some early ones, Transylvania 6-5000 and Young Doctors in Love, which, uh, along with the TV show Fridays, is where I first saw Michael and realized he would be great for this role. Wow. Wow. No, I don't even when he came into audition, he was a little leery about being in this movie. Um, what, what do you remember about that, Jay? I, I remember we couldn't figure out why, ultimately. But I, we, he came in, uh, you know, we, we kind of cajoled him into coming in, and I remember we walked into the, uh, the little kitchen area where we were holding our casting sessions, and he was just standing there kind of rummaging, looking for food, and started goofing on us immediately. Uh, he was just unbelievably funny. And, and then he brought those teeth. <laughs> he, he auditioned for us wearing those same fake teeth that you can see him wearing here in the movie. Um, those teeth were made for him by a dentist friend of his in London. Those teeth were really the key to his character for him. Yeah, he, he became Stanley whenever he put the teeth in. Right. In fact, there was a scene later on where he forgot them. He was very upset. <laughs> here we are at City Hall, which is actually uh, the first Christian science church at 10th and Boulder. And there's Francis M. Carlson playing the old blind man with a Rubik's Cube. It's kind of a shame because he got typecast as blind man with a Rubik's Cube and he could never find work again after that. Fran Drescher we're about to meet Billy Barty. Billy! Billy was three feet nine inches tall and his movie credits go all the way back to 1927 for crying out loud. He grew up, so to speak, in vaudeville, and uh, he spent eight years on the road with Spike Jones, who's, who's another one of my all-time heroes. Uh, I mentioned he did a few uh, flicks with uh, Elvis Presley, Harem Scarum, and Roustabout, and he was also in Legend, uh, Willow, Foul Play, Masters of the Universe, and dozens and dozens of others. 
He had a, a show called Billy Barty's Big Show, which was on the air when I was a little kid. He had his own little little kid show. And he continued to make movies and work with uh, nonprofit organizations like the Billy Barty Foundation uh, right up until the year 2000, which is when he sadly passed away. We all miss him a lot. You know, much of this scene was uh, deleted, and you can see it as well as a bunch of other things in the deleted scene section of this DVD. You know, since this movie was made mostly in 1988, uh, we weren't thinking about the DVD release back then. Like, nowadays, when people put out a movie, uh, they have their bonus materials done almost before the movie comes out. And uh, we weren't thinking of that back then. In fact, all of the deleted scenes that you see from this movie uh, are taken from a VHS tape that I've had in my closet for the last 13 years. That's David Proval, who you might recognize from the second season of uh, The Sopranos as well as Shawshank Redemption. And uh, his first movie role was actually Mean Streets, where he was directed by Martin Scorsese, and he was third-billed next to Robert De Niro and Harvey Keitel. And kids, if you don't know who Harvey Keitel is, he played uh, the devil in Adam Sandler's Little Nicky. One of my many regrets on this movie is that we didn't let Fran Drescher ad-lib more. She's just a brilliant ad-libber. He is so evil. Ah, oh, there's Emo Phillips. I wonder whatever happened to him. I'm right behind you. No! Oh! Hi, Emo. Hello. Thanks for dropping by. Oh, my pleasure. You know, I've always regretted the scene you cut. You know, that introduction scene where I explained that I was a shop teacher? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, you know, I've got it memorized. Do you want to just perform it with me right now? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. <clears throat> you know, back when I was in high school, the stereotype was that shop class was for people who were less intellectually gifted. But, you know, last weekend I was trying to make a bookcase and, well, it made me wish that I had taken shop. Why? And scene. Bravo, Al! Thank you, thank you. You know, Ema, I was, uh, I was actually getting a lot of pressure from the studio to, to cut you out of the movie, because uh, this scene and the scene with the poodles flying out the window uh, are the reason we got a PG-13. Um, but, but those are two of my favorite scenes, so I, you know, I just couldn't cut them out. Good for you. Don't let the man keep you down. This was the highlight of my career. And, and, and thank you so much for hiring that microsurgeon. Well, you know, it would have been cheaper and easier just to use special effects. We could... No, no, I'm not that kind of an actor. I'm a methadone actor. I bleed for my art. Well, on behalf of emophiliacs everywhere, thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you. Could you validate my parking? Spatula City. This is the very first stuff we shot in the movie. There's Eldon Hallam, who's an instructor at Roger State University in Claremore. The wife is Sherry Engstrom. And we shot it at 2846 East 21st Place, the Paul Patton residence. So since this was the first stuff we shot, these were the first dailies that Orion saw. So they have this new movie, and all they're seeing is, like, shots of people admiring spatulas. I think they were a little concerned at the time. The Spatula City uh, billboard. This was, this was at uh, Memorial Drive and Broken Arrow Expressway. And we just had it there for that one shot, but for some reason they left it up there all summer long. Anybody driving down the freeway that whole summer saw the, uh, <laughs> the billboard for Spatula City, and they'd, like, be looking for it on the off-ramp. Because of this scene, uh, I, I always get spatulas from fans when I go on the road. And in fact, I met a couple that had spatulas tattooed on their abdomens as a sign for eternal love for each other. 
And uh, I hear that they broke up shortly afterwards. Angie Kelly was the announcer. That's uh, Sarah Allen playing the neighbor. And here's the stepsister singing the Spatula City jingle. Spatula City was actually warehouse market at 6300 South Peoria. And here's Uncle Nutsy's Clubhouse. This title was taken from one of my favorite old Mad Magazine articles. There's actually a couple of Mad Magazine references. Even the name George Newman is a sly reference to Alfred E. Newman. I think this look was somehow uh, appropriated from uh, Uncle Floyd a little bit, the, uh, the hat and the jacket. Uncle Floyd being a host of a sort of a kid show in a little UHF station in uh, New Jersey. Now, a lot of people probably think that kid really spit on me, but actually, that was an incredible optical effect done by Industrial Light and Magic using the latest digital imaging software. Ha no. Half of our budget for the movie went for that. Oh, that's where it went. The kid was actually Travis Knight, and uh, he was told not to laugh during that, but I, he couldn't help himself. Look down. Now look at Mr. Frying Pan. I actually busted David Bowe's lip in that shot. So that... That's a real reaction. He's not <laughs> He's not too happy right now. He's actually bleeding. I know. You're hungry, aren't you? The set design, this must have been tough for you, Jay, because it's a, it's a fine line between looking authentic like a, you know, low-budget TV station and just looking, looking cheap. cheap. Right. <laughs> yes, it's always walking it's that fine walking line. Walking that fine line. Now, what was he eating instead of uh, Yappy's dog treats? Where, Oh, well, that's what we gave him. We gave him Matthew's dog treats? Absolutely. He's a method actor. You might recognize the cameraman in this scene. He's Lou B. Washington, or Ludie Washington. I'm not really sure. I think there's some kind of question about his, his end credit. But uh, he was in the fat video. He was at the very beginning uh, taunting me, saying, are you fat or what? And yo, homeboy. <laughs> his actual name in the script was Burt Reynolds, but... We never mentioned him by name, so... That's funny. You remember that? Uh, the dentist office. You might recognize this as uh, 7335 South Lewis in Tulsa. Now, Mr. Ramsey is the president of the local chapter... Terry, of course, is a dental hygienist. And Fran's interviewing Earl Ramsey, gun enthusiast. Earl Ramsey is the name of a guy that I used to make prank phone calls to when I was a, a teenager. The actor here is Ivan Green, who is a local guy who's appeared in at least one Ernest movie. And we cast him because he could make this face right here. Ah, oh, my goodness. More of those uh, <laughs> production values that we love in this movie. I forgot when it was exactly, but sometime during the shooting, they had some kind of ceremony where they made me, what was honorary mayor of Tulsa? Remember that? I had to wear like an Indian headdress. Oh! This, of course, is the Oaklawn Cemetery at 11th and Peoria. We had a bunch of extras that agreed to be buried with just their arms and legs sticking out of the ground. We had to pay him extra that day. Just kidding! We paid him what we always pay him. There was one, uh, there was one shot that was in the original script where we had a crane operator lowering a casket and the body falls out with a thud and the announcer says, Has this ever happened to you? That's funny. <laughs> I remember I went through hundreds of hours of uh, Beverly Hillbilly shows just to find the right footage to use here. This sequence was shot at the Valencia Studios at 28343 Avenue Crocker Stage 2. 
by Magic Mountain in Valencia, California. This is my actual band here, John Bermuda Schwartz, Steve J, Jim West. All of the animation in this was done by a man named Rick Morris, who uh, actually, we've known Rick for a long time. He uh, actually was the editor on your very first music video, Ricky, and became a good friend, and we consulted him on how should we make this, and he said, well, I'll do it. And we said, yeah, but this is what we have for money. And he said, well, I'll do it at home on my home computer. And that's what he did over a course of, what, like three months? Yeah, Rick's a great guy. This looks a little primitive by today's standards, but for 1988, this was state-of-the-art. It sure looked like the original. Yeah. By the way, when we uh, uh, first approached Mark Knopfler for uh, permission from him and from Dire Straits to uh, do the parody of this, uh, that was a great story where, uh, you know, I... Got a phone call at one point from uh, Mark's manager saying that Mark was was curled up in a corner reading the authorized Al, laughing hysterically, because we had sent him all this uh, research material, background material on Al. And of course, uh, the legendary uh, response from Mark Knopfler, the uh, uh, writer of, uh, of course, of uh, Money for Nothing, was, well, sure, you can do it as long as I get to play guitar on it. And he certainly did, and Guy Fletcher from the band also played on it. Now, before we knew Mark Knopfler was going to get involved, I had my regular guitar player, Jim West, lay down the guitar track. And the ironic thing is, Jim's track sounded more like the original Money for Nothing than Mark Knopfler's did. That's because Jim was painstakingly copying every note from the original record, and Mark's version had a looser feel because he'd been playing the song on the road for a while. Obviously, we used Mark's version because you just can't copy that Mark Knopfler feel. This music video, like uh, all of our music videos, uh, is tightly storyboarded. We try to do things shot for shot. Uh, David Silverman, who is now a producer on The Simpsons, designed the animated characters in this piece. Uh, the first time I did a parody of the Beverly Hillbillies theme song, I, I matched it up with the Rolling Stones' Miss You. I used to play that in concert at college coffee houses. And originally when we were doing the movie, we wanted to match it up with Prince's Let's Go Crazy, but uh, Prince has never been a, a fan. The song had lines like, But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. Syndication a world of never-ending residuals where you can watch the reruns day and night. So when you call up that bank in Beverly Hills, you know, it went on and on like that. Um, a lot of critics that didn't like UHF said they actually liked this video, but then they suggested that maybe I should just stick to making music videos. We tried to get Buddy Ebsen to do a cameo in this video, but ultimately we just couldn't afford him. So we used a fake Buddy in a few shots. And unfortunately, the actor that was hired didn't really look a whole lot like Buddy Ebsen, and the wardrobe wasn't an exact match with Jed Clampett, so we wound up not really featuring him very much. But you can see him in a couple shots in the background there. We also had a, a Flintstones fantasy in the original script for the movie, which uh, we never actually shot. I guess we figured that one TV-based fantasy was enough per movie. We had Paul Henning's permission for all that Beverly Hillbilly stuff, right? Did you, you, you talk to him, Jay? Paul, was, Paul loved it. We had to name that song Money for Nothing slash Beverly Hillbillies asterisk because the lawyers told us that had to be the name. Those wacky lawyers. What you gonna do? I don't mind. Go go right ahead. In the next shot, we get to meet Terry's parents, played by Tony Frank on the left and Billy Lee Thrash on the right. Billy Lee Thrash was a great actress. I wonder what she looked like. Would have been nice to see her face in this scene. She was such a joy to work with. I wonder what she looked like. Oh, well, I guess we'll never know. Too bad. Billy Lee Thrash, ladies and gentlemen. Billy Lee Thrash.
Oh, this is a heavy acting scene coming up here. I'm digging deep now. Okay, give me the bad news first. Now, speaking of which, my acting coach for this movie was uh, Michael Lembeck, but don't hold that against him. We had a two-week crash course before the movie um, because the producers thought that I should, you know, just suck a little bit, not suck completely. Uh, Michael Lembeck is a famous TV director now. He worked. He works a lot on the series Friends, and uh, he's got a famous father, uh, Harvey Lembeck, who played Eric Von Zipper in Beach Blanket Bingo and a lot of Annette Funicello movies, the leader of the Rat Pack. I never should have taken this job. This is heavy drama here. It's very heavy. Should have known it would turn out like all the others. <laughs> you know, for a short time there, I, I'm I feeling really my sense memory. Be different. I'm thinking of when my dog died. I just don't know. At least I've still got Terry. Ba ba ba! What time is it? Uh, 9:30. Oh no! Now, remember when phones sounded like that? We're through. Oh, very sad. I went to a screening of UHF in Amsterdam, and at this point right here, they turned the house lights on. It was intermission time. I guess they don't like sitting through entire movies all at once. It was really strange being in a foreign country and watching my movie because the audience's laughing would always be off by a couple seconds because they were reading the subtitles. That's right. I always thought we should have had subtitles. Oh, you're still there, Jay? That's good. And boy, oh boy, are we gonna have? This is the depressed Uncle Nutsy scene. We're gonna have so much fun. With Joseph Witt playing the little weasel. Forget about how You know, um, UHF kind of wound up being a bad title. Of course, it stands for ultra-high frequency, but I think a lot of people, particularly younger people, don't really know what that means anymore. I mean, I grew up in a generation where we had old TV sets with knobs where you could tune above Channel 13 and find these funky, weird, local, low-budget UHF stations. Uh, but nowadays, with the proliferation of cable and satellite TV, I'm, I'm sure a lot fewer people even know what a UHF station is. Plus, like in other countries, that title has even less relevance. So when Orion said, hey, we gotta change the title for the international market, I said, well, yeah, sure, that makes sense. How about um, the Vidiot or Vidiots? And they said, yeah, that's pretty good. Okay, we'll call it the Vidiot from UHF. And I said, wait a minute, I, I thought UHF didn't mean anything overseas. And they said, well, yeah, but we wanna tie it in somehow with the US release. So, so I went from having a bad title to having the worst title of all time. After this movie bombed in the States, I almost didn't go to Europe to promote it just because I was embarrassed of the name. But then I thought, hey, free trip to Europe. Those interviews, though, they were excruciating. The first question was always, why did you decide to call your movie The Vidiot from UHF? And I'd say, I didn't. I didn't name it that. I hate that title. Um, I shouldn't say the movie bombed because, uh, well, last time I checked, it was actually the 2,253rd highest grossing film of all time. In fact, in 1989, it grossed more than Drugstore Cowboy, January Man, Red Scorpion, Let It Ride, The Phantom of the Opera, Earth Girls Are Easy, Fat Man and Little Boy, Return of the Swamp Thing, and The Toxic Avenger, parts two and three. Robert K. Weiss. Bob Weiss, yeah. He, uh, uh, an old friend of ours, he also produced the Blues Brothers, uh, the Police Squad TV show, and all the Naked Gun movies, and... He co-directed The Complete Owl with you. We shot this at Joey's Bar, again at 2222 East 61st, um, the same place we did Café Francais. But through the magic of movie making... So I guess Terry's never going to speak to you again, huh? And the drink shows up. Now, my drink here was supposed to be this huge, ridiculous-looking tropical drink with fruit and umbrellas, just, just way over the top. And that is what we got. 
We were on such a tight shooting schedule that usually we had to approve the props just minutes before we needed to shoot them in a scene. And if they weren't exactly what we had in mind, well, too bad. That did happen a lot. Now, Michael improvised a lot of this speech before he gets into the whole thing with the mop. We didn't really bother even writing anything particularly funny for him in this part because we knew that Michael would be able to just ad-lib something much better anyway. I think we just had some kind of stream of consciousness babble in the script here. This might be a good time to mention some of the actors that got cut out of the movie, which uh, you can see again in the deleted scenes. Uh, Marco Perella played uh, newsman Fred Parker. Uh, Noel Parenti played Dr. Leon Zemlick, and Wendy Clarendon played Elaine. Uh, I felt really bad because Wendy showed up to one of the premieres of UHF thinking that she was still in the movie. Nobody had told her that she got cut out. I still feel really bad about that to this day. A lot of the people in this crowd scene uh, were part of our crew, from what I remember. Everybody's very into Stanley. And sometimes... And here's sometimes a movie reference, isn't it? From 1976's Network. You know, we watched a lot of movies like Network when we were getting ready to write the script. I think we watched Network and The Producers and The Ratings Game. The ratings Game actually had uh, Michael Richards and Kevin McCarthy in it. We had Battle Hymn of the Republic in the temp track, and we just couldn't think of anything we liked better than that, so that's what we wound up using in the movie. I think we had the idea for UHF as early as 1985. We're trying to think of a vehicle for me that would involve parodies and making fun of TV and commercials and still have some kind of storyline, and we thought the uh, idea of me running a low-budget TV station was fraught with possibilities. And look what happened. Look what happened. We wrote the script originally longhand on these yellow notepads and then eventually transferred it to your ancient computer. This is the late 80s. It's scary. I remember it was a big deal when we bought a microwave oven so we'd have TV dinners to eat while we were writing the script. That was our first big investment in this movie. It really paid off. That was me doing my best Sergeant Bilko, trying to get Stanley all pumped up. Now, this train set was built by some... Uh, train set enthusiasts in Tulsa, right, Jay? Absolutely. It was like the local train club. We got a lot of support from the locals in Tulsa. They were really great to work with. Uh -huh. uh, this is the grape-catching scene. Uh, David Bowe and I were kind of hanging around by the craft services table, and I was throwing grapes at him, and he was catching them in his mouth. And it was a, a talent he's had for a long time. And a couple of minutes before we actually shot the scene, we decided to, to do this. I think we did two takes, and he cut every single grape. An amazing talent. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. I've been working on some new ideas. Tell me what you think. Coming up on Wheel of Fish. Today, one of these lucky We, we uh, went to the White River Fish Market and bought about 160 pounds of fresh, whole, large, dead fish of various types, everything from mackerel to sea bass. And uh, starting at 6 a.m., uh, dead fish wrangler Ricardo Wilson nailed, wired, and screwed them onto the wheel and spent the whole day trying to get the wheel to balance and spin properly. This is the middle of summer. This is the middle of summer in a place that was largely not air-conditioned. And uh, they started at 6 in the morning. We didn't get around to shooting till 4.30 that afternoon because we were somewhere else on location. So 4.30 in the afternoon, middle of summer, not air-conditioned, 100 extras 
hot movie lights, and those fish were ripe. It was not pleasant. Oh, red snapper. It was originally a swordfish instead of a red snapper in the script, but I guess they didn't have a swordfish at the fish market. And uh, you know, red snapper I think sounds funnier anyway. Red snapper is definitely funny. That was the way to go. That was a little bit of kismet there. That leaves us Stefanik, a local Tulsa resident, playing the game show contestant. She was really, really good. On the left there and on the right there are contest winners. So we had a contest B in Weird Al's new movie. And that was the contest winner and her sister. Cooney, by the way, is named after a record label executive friend of ours in Japan. And Weaver is named after uh, Jay's old secretary, Christine Weaver. So you get to do all that kind of stuff when you make your own movie. There's actually a bunch of characters in this movie that uh, are named after old friends of mine. Uh, Joel Miller is one of my all-time best friends. He was my best man at my wedding. Um, Joe Early is the name of another college friend. Uh, Finkelstein was the name of the kid that lived next door to me when I was growing up. And Stanley Spadowski is actually based on Stanley Snedowski, who's one of the owners of The Bottom Line, which is one of our favorite places to play in New York. Um, Fletcher is another high school friend. Uh, and the name Bob is a palindrome. We just like that name. Gotta have Bob in the film somewhere. It's very, very Church of the Subgenius. Uh, Trinidad Silva. He's best known as Jesus Martinez on Hill Street Blues. He was also in Colors and the Milagro Beanfield War. This scene was one of our favorites, but uh, for a long time it was very hard to watch it because um, Trinidad was tragically hit and killed by a drunk driver in July 1988, uh, which is right in the middle of our filming. Um, we, were all, we were all personally devastated by by the loss of our friend. And on, on top of that, we had to deal with a minor problem that, you know, he hadn't finished shooting all of the scenes. Uh, he was supposed to be a delivery guy. When, when Pamela brings the package in from Channel 8, that was supposed to be Trinidad bringing it in. And uh, he had a scene at the end of the movie where the poodles get the revenge. So uh, there was a brief discussion about recasting and reshooting the role, but we were all just a little bit too grief-stricken to consider it. Plus, he did um, such a great job. Yeah, it, his footage was just brilliant, and, you know, on top of that, we, we were just emotionally unprepared to recast it, and uh, you'll notice we, we dedicated UHF to his memory. Where did you find this guy? On a slightly cheerier note, um, the ASPCA was on the set, making sure that we didn't actually throw poodles out the window. But when they weren't looking... Ah! There was something in the original script about what to do to keep your cat regular, but thankfully we cut that one out. You may recognize Raul's apartment as 330 East 11th. You know, we learned in test screenings that it was actually much funnier not to show the poodles actually landing. People would wince. But if we cut out a couple frames earlier and just heard them land, that was comedy. Now that's funny. Oh, man. Now when Victoria was doing this scene, I was off camera, ranting, like you hear right now. This was actually me off camera. We were gonna reloop this later and do something completely different, but this uh, got such a reaction when we were doing the test screenings that we left it in as is. I guess I was kind of like doing a bad Sam Kinison impression or something, but people seem to like it. Just trying to help her motivation there. 
And Kevin McCarthy was John Paragon again. We love John Paragon, but it, it was tough to figure out where to put him in the movie. Uh, he actually auditioned for several roles, including R.J. himself, and we just we just didn't know where to put him. And uh, we actually had Jim J. Bullock originally cast as Richard, and uh, when he fell out, we immediately had John fill in the role. And of course, he was great. Just thought I ought to tell you, sir. There's a lot of talk on the street about this Channel 62. There's a joke coming up here. Starting to get a pretty strong. There's a gag on the way. Excuse me? Here's the setup. Did you say Channel 62? Uh-huh. Do I have to remind you that we are... What a ridiculous hat. Idiots. That hat and is just ridiculous. With other networks, not with a bunch of punks. I've never Why seen such a ridiculous hat. Here it comes. Do you enjoy wasting my time? Get out of my office! And take that ridiculous thing off! Oh! Because oh, I thought it was going to be the... Oh! We took out the reaction shot of RJ going, What the? Huh? This song was called Fun Zone, which is played at the beginning of all my live shows, and it was originally written for a show called Welcome to the Fun Zone, which, Jay, you directed. I did. And, no, I uh, didn't. I produced. You produced, sorry. With Robert K. Wise. With Robert K. Wise. And, and it was supposed partner. to be a replacement for Saturday Night Live, which, of course, it was, and it ran for many, many years. It was? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> In an alternate universe. Now, this whole thing here, this was kind of loosely based on Sonny Fox and Wonderama, right? Which is one of your all-time yeah. favorite shows. I would watch this in the local um, New York uh, area. and They used to have a uh, treasure chest, and uh, they'd have these two kids sitting at the treasure chest, and they'd be going through all these mountains of keys to s throughout the entire show to see which one would open up the uh, treasure chest. So, of course, we had the marble and the oatmeal. This kid here is Adam Maris. He was the son of the stunt coordinator in the movie. The drink from the fire hose gag is based on a comedy routine that my friend Joel Miller and I used to do on my campus radio station way back when I was a college DJ. I believe the original routine also mentioned other games like spit on the gopher and jump in the compost. This is Cliff Stevens being the animal delivery man. We could never get over this scene. It always looks like Trinidad is standing in front of a green screen. Badgers? Badgers? Of course, the punchline to this no scene is a takeoff on We Don't Need No Stinking Badges, which is probably the most famous line from the 1948 Humphrey Bogart movie, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh, Blazing Saddles and a number of other movies have also poked fun at the badges line. Now, there's part of the scene that was cut out. We had a whole scene where Victoria walks into the room and finds it filled with stuffed animals because we had a whole subplot where every time that George screwed up or did something wrong, you know, I'd bring her a stuffed animal. And she found a whole room full. Half of our budget went for stuffed animals. So what it's not even in the movie. Uh, here's Conan the Librarian. And there's Tom McKinley, our wardrobe stylist, right there. Has there been a screen presence so commanding? So this announcer powerful, is Jim Rose. So and Conan is played by Roger Callard, although he was actually looped for this. I don't mean he was drunk, I mean somebody else did his voice. Robert Frank, playing the timid man, we put him on a little seesaw to do this gag. Conan, the librarian. I'm sorry. This is Jeff Maynard. Now this gag, I kind of stole from Monty Python, and it's extremely cartoony. And yet a lot of uh, times when a movie was played on TV, they cut it out for being too violent. 
This is where you go wild. So here is, of course, we wind up Michael and let him go. Tastes like poo. This is Michael just working without a script, just improvising as he goes along. These are good corn. We should have just done the whole movie this way. Free toy inside. Free toy inside. Our production designer, Ward Preston, came up with a lot of the titles on this board. Leave it to Bigfoot. Name that stain. We had a crew that was having a really hard time not laughing through yeah. this. <laughs> hey, remember there was some kind of tour group walking through the soundstage right here while we were shooting this scene. It was kind of fun. We had a live audience here. The wide world of tractor pulls. Yeah. The vol Volcano Worshippers Hour. I, I had a club in high school called the Volcano Worshippers Club, which I started just so we could get another picture in the yearbook. We're number one. <gasps> Say what? Oh! He got a 60 seems like share. the beginning of an act or the end of an act or something. I don't know. Something's going on here. Real money. And it's time for the U62 promo, starting off with Mike and Spike. Not to be confused with Spike and Mike's animation festival. Now, one of these guys actually gave himself a concussion doing this scene. Oh, there's, there's Bowling for Burgers, which was shot at the Rose Bowl lanes on Old Route 66 in Tulsa. And Billy Barty playing a little strip solitaire. Jay Gardner is the announcer here. Ludie Washington once again. And here's Herbert Glucksman playing Gorbachev. We originally wanted a Henry Kissinger lookalike, but that's what we got. Now don't blink or you'll miss Dr. Demento eating whipped cream. There he is! Be there! Be there was NBC's promotional catchphrase that year, sort of like must-see TV. By the way, that, that thing that Stanley pulled out of his nose a couple shots back, that was a folded-up straw wrapper. We, we always thought that was fairly obvious, but some critics got on our case for doing booger jokes. Although I guess, you know, anytime you're pulling something out of your nose, you're ostensibly doing a booger joke on some level. We're losing credibility in the market. Here's a couple of uh, RJ's cronies, played by Barry Friedman and Kevin Roden. Oh, this, the picture in the back there of RJ Sr. We would have had an insert close-up of that, but unfortunately it wasn't a very good picture. Another one of those props that didn't turn out as well as we thought it would. And we didn't find out about until right before we shot. Of course, I, I don't blame the props department. I blame myself. I'm... I'm sorry. Here's Kevin's method acting. I'm gonna go over and put my hands on his head. Who owns that station anyway? Let me be your hog! Now, uh, originally I wanted uh, kung fu fighting for this music cue, but I think they wanted like $12,000 for it, so... So instead, I wrote the greatest song of my entire career, Let Me Be Your Hog. Now, this is supposed to be California, but actually, we're still at 6636 South Knoxville in Tulsa. But you knew that. You knew that. None of your horses came in. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. You know, I always thought we should have had Big Louie turn around and it's like Merv Griffin or something. That was a real missed opportunity. Remember when we were talking about that, Jay? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Eh, whatever. Oh, you, you can tell this movie was made in the 80s because the cell phone here is so big you can actually see it. Okay, now, kids, don't try this at home. You'll never get your hands back on your wrists, believe me. Look at that phone drip. That was one dripping phone there. Uh, you know, I, I always thought this scene was kind of offensive to people that have meat cleavers for hands, but... Oh, now, this is a big acting moment for Stanley Brock. This is his bid for the Oscar right here. I'm dead meat. Dead meat! You get it? Oh, this movie is just rife with symbolic imagery. 
Fellini eat your heart out. Anyway. Oh, oh, look who's here! Whoa, what are you doing in my house? <laughs> it's Michael Richards, ladies and gentlemen. Can I sit here? Sure, have a seat. Oh, I'm sorry. I did see you there. <laughs> hey, Michael, how's hey. it going? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Hey, UHF, huh? Check it out. Yeah, oh, boy, look at my goodness. Oh, there I am. Yeah, I, uh, well, I need, ooh, gee, my goodness, yes, I remember. Mm -hmm. You're good at entering a room. Watch how I go out the door. Wow. <laughs> Kevin McCarthy. He's a scary guy. Yeah. Actors. With a tape measure, especially. And actor's studio here. His, he worked, oh, yes, he's drawn off of a very personal reserve to get this face. <laughs> ah, doggies. Now, see, my, my problem, yeah, you were smart to, uh, to cut your hair so short for uh, the part of Stanley, because, see, I'm doing some great acting here, but you can't tell, because all the acting's on my forehead. It's all obscured. No, let's see. Uh, see, right there. No. I'm digging deep, and you can't even tell. Mm. Critics thought I sucked, but it was just my haircut. See, it's right oh, there. Oh, that's perfect. That was great. But that was just that cutout we put in. You weren't in the, that <laughs> shot, really, were you? I was having lunch. They yeah, like, I don't think staff? you were available that day. There I am. I'm invisible. <laughs> Here I am again. I played this part. They don't wearing know your special I, effects makeup. I played this part and her part. That's all me. <laughs> so now, what did you think the first time you read the script? You got the script and you read it. What did you think? Um, I liked it because I'm a fan of Al Yankovic. I was. I, I love what the, he does. All the lampoonery with the with the music and so forth. So I said, this will be terrific. Lampoonery is my forte. Indeed, it is. And uh, so. When I came in, though, I don't think I stuck to script, did I? No. I think I just you had a quite sense a bit. of it and just got to work. Now, now there's no you... one there. He's just looking into the wind. That's real acting. That's real acting. Look at that, yeah. Now, where are you in this scene? Are you in the back seat or in the trunk? I forget. Now, okay, now here, I wasn't talking to anybody. You know how I'm talking That's to That's not here? even connected to a phone base. I look like I'm listening to something, but in reality... You do know I'm a big fan of yours, don't you? Well... Right back at you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that plant in the background isn't real either. No. Oh. Now she went on to do the nanny. Oh, that's her? Yes. Wow. And look at here. Now here we're going to have a light bulb go off over uh, Philo's head. But we thought that was a little too corny even for us. <laughs> I love the shirt. Ding! Oh, and here's Kevin drawing off his personal reserves again. That was real money. He insisted that, on having real money. That was his paycheck for this movie. He would not do that scene unless he, he wanted had it in real cash, money. or he, was, he wasn't going to finish the movie with us. Mm -hmm. You know, this was the first picture I ever made where I was actually starring, you know, with other people. But it was my first picture where I got a, a, a billing, a featured title. So I was, uh, I was kind of nervous about that. But on the other hand, <laughs> I saw a phenomenal opportunity to get zany. <laughs> you gave me my break. Uh, oh! <laughs> oh, now, see, that's a continuity problem. He didn't have the pencil in his mouth. We uh, reshoot. you notice that? <laughs> Run it back. That was a continuity You're problem. absolutely right. Oh, we, got, we got free continental flights for this, didn't we, Jay? We did. Kick back! Woo! We're at the Tulsa International Airport here. Hmm. Yeah, it wasn't really hot, but he played it hot. Again, acting. He played it hot. That fellow there in the back that we just passed by, he had that orange hat on. He tried to steal the scene with that hat. <laughs> Michael, you are in this movie, by the way. I don't need to be. Not now. Not with this kind of acting going by. Look at 
Remember the Shriners? They came out and they gave us that little car, the electric car that I made my entrance in. That's right. Yeah, that was a remarkable little car. That was cool, yeah. Now that I would have liked to have kept. Yeah. That I would have liked to have got on the road with. <laughs> Easy parking. You know. what, what a great world this would be if we all just drove little Shriner cars. Mm -hmm. And carried handguns. What a great world it would be. Well, uh, you see, the thing is that uh, I promised George that I'd give him a chance to oh, boy. get all the money back. You know, I love watching this. This is really great. But, you know, I've been eating these prunes. And uh, I got to, um, you know, I'll be right back, okay? Well, if you got to go, you got to go. Bye, Michael. Now, here we had uh, RJ saying something like, I'll make sure he doesn't. But we took it out. Town Talk. Well, this, this was an 11th hour addition to the script. Uh, we, we had a studio note to put this scene in because Orion thought it would be a great idea to have a trash TV send-up. And uh, it wasn't really a bad idea. I mean, they no, were not at all. We actually got some good studio notes from them. Um, when we were writing the screenplay, I basically wrote all the gags and sketches, and Jay, you concentrated more on plot and structure, because, you know, you were the one that had read the Sid Field book. Yeah. Uh, but I remember this is the one sketch that you wrote all by yourself, and uh, I don't think we changed a word from your original first draft. So, is that true? Yeah, good job there. Oh, thanks. That was uh, Patrick O'Brien playing the hoary lord of the netherworld. Actually, the line that I'm most proud of is, that stapler. <laughs> this is a Geraldo Rivera reference. Is that the end of the movie? Oh, sorry. Anyway, um, I was just saying that last shot was a reference to a famous chair-throwing incident that happened on the old Geraldo Rivera show. This is an odd... <laughs> He's got such great body language. This is an odd scene because Michael didn't understand the joke, what did I ask? <laughs> I think it's funny. He just, he didn't know how to read the line. And we're both squinting because we're in direct sunlight here. Not unless you've got $75,000. See, he could have pulled all the money out of his wallet right here, and that could have been the end of the movie. We could have kept the movie short and fit in another screening at the multiplex. This is ridiculous. Gotta love those teeth. Which brings us to the telethon, which thankfully we cut way, way down. We decided to uh, leave as much funny stuff in the movie as possible and cut away <laughs> as much of the plot as we possibly could. Channel 62, something funny's going on. See, now, now that should have been in the trailer. That's right, something funny's always going on at Channel 62. Yeah. Good. Well, not a lot of people actually got to see UHF during its brief two-week theatrical run, but thankfully it found its audience on cable TV and home video. Uh, Orion released UHF on VHS, Beta, and Laserdisc on January 25th, 1990, and fans gradually began to discover it. Of course, Orion had to change the tagline on the video box. The posters used to say, TV as it was meant to be seen, in a movie theater which of course didn't make much sense for a home video release, so they changed it to something like, it's wacky, it's zany, it's TV according to Weird Al Yankovic, which I thought was completely stupid, but I was out of the creative loop at this point. The video went on to be a top rental title, but Orion went out of business soon after that, and UHF went out of print completely around 1996. But by then, it had developed a huge cult fan base, and prior to this DVD coming out, copies of the movie were commanding top dollar at places like eBay. 
Oh, see, now that's an evil guy breaking a poor defenseless pencil like that. Ouch. Oh, Jay, you've been a little less than verbose. Why don't you, um, why don't you talk a little bit about your directorial style? What was your artistic vision? Maybe the reason I'm being less than verbose is I didn't really have an artistic vision. Uh, you know, I think it was uh, to be funny and, and to make sure that we captured the comedy uh, correctly on, uh, on the screen. You know, in fact, the studio would, uh, would often say to me, you know, where's a style? We're looking to develop a style maybe in this. And uh, I just didn't see it that way. To me, this was more in the vein of, you know, Kentucky Fried Movie or Airplane or basically where it's all about the gags. And as long as the comedy's playing, that's what it's about. So... If it's funny, that's good, and if it's not, redo it. Um, and that was kind of my point of view. Why didn't you tell me you didn't know what you were doing? Well, you know, neither one of us had written a script before, and you'd never directed a feature film before, and I'd never starred in a movie before, so I probably figured if none of us knew what we were doing, everything would just kind of balance out. And see what happened? No, no, Stanley, don't open that door! No! Don't open that door! No, Stanley, no! No! Okay, there's Fletcher's Thugs. That's Bob Maris on the left and George Fisher on the right. Uh, Bob was a Tulsa Police Department Bomb Squad member, and he uh, became the stunt coordinator for the movie. Uh, George Fisher is a combination stuntman and actor, so if you ever see him in a movie, you can bet he'll be flying through the air or falling out a window. David Proval on the right in the front and Grant James on the left. They used to be named Frankie and Eddie, but again, we never hear their name in the movie, so their end credits are listed as Head Thug and Killer Thug. The Kipper Kids. That's Yay. Harry Kipper and Harry Kipper, uh, some performance artists that were big fans of, um, based in L.A. They're actually in the movie The Forbidden Zone, which is a very cool, weird movie. Uh, one of them, Martin Von Hasselberg, is an investment banker, and he's married to Bette Midler. And they, they flew in from L.A. just for that, <laughs> well, it wound up to be just for that one shot. They actually did a whole song for us, which, uh, again, in editing, we had to cut way, way, way down. In fact, they just relooped themselves singing nonsense syllables for that shot. Very unfortunate. They're really great guys. But some of that can be found in deleted scenes, right? That, that's right. Orange. You give up? It's an orange. It's an orange. <laughs> it's one of the stupidest things I've ever written, but it still cracks me up. Right up there with Show Me the Money. Did I write that? Wow. Let me kill him. Please. Let Grant James had a great... Thug face. Now, it was Michael's idea to do the theme from Bonanza. Originally in, in the script, uh, we had Helter Skelter from the Beatles. And uh, oddly enough, Michael wasn't familiar with the song. So we, we, we shot him singing Helter Skelter, but it wasn't with quite as much enthusiasm. He actually did three songs. He did Helter Skelter, Bonanza, and what was the other one, Jay? Do you remember? Yikes. I don't. Oh. Weren't you on the set that day? <laughs> Here's Ludi having a little pick-me-up. The upside-down yodeler, uh, his name is Charles Marsh. He used to stand on his head and play guitar at the Turner Turnpike Tollgate. We had a talent show to get some of these people. That's right, we had a gong show. That was one of the very first things we did when we uh, went to Tulsa. Next week, and Jay, this is your moment <laughs> in the spotlight. I'll never live it down. Ladies and gentlemen, Jay Levy is Gandhi. Now, Jay, the big question is, do you think you're going to burn in hell for this? I don't know. <laughs> Tim Leary said I wouldn't. Oh, good. It, it was so weird to watch you shooting this scene because I'd never seen an action star directing himself in a scene before. He'd be like, ah! 
Cut. Okay, everybody back to one. Lame boy. The scene here where you're banging this guy's head on the roof of the car. Yeah. You remember you made a tiny little dent and everybody was freaked out because we didn't have that in the budget. Right. <laughs> like if this was a John Landis film, we'd have like wrecked 20 cars by now. Give me a stick. Medium rare. The music's supposed to sound sort of like Shaft, which it did to the point of almost getting us in trouble with the music cue. We had another uh, movie parody in the script, which we never shot, which was um, The Color Purple, the special edition, where Whoopi Goldberg actually goes inside the spaceship. But I guess we decided that one Close Encounters joke per movie was enough. Now, if you watch closely, there's a key clue about to be revealed. Now, is this unnecessary telegraphing, or is it wacky foreshadowing? We just don't know yet. I think we'll burn in hell for that. <laughs> Here's Terry walking, 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 walking. Walk, 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 walk. And maybe, maybe now would be a good time to mention some of the people that auditioned for UHF that uh, for one reason or another didn't make it. Ellen DeGeneres actually uh, came into audition for uh, the role of Terry, and she was really excellent. I was watching uh, the audition tape just the other day, and uh, I guess for, for whatever reason, uh, it didn't work out. She was great, though. Also, a very young David Spade came in to read. Um, John Aston, who was the original Gomez on The Addams Family. Uh, Paul Gleason, Michael J. Pollard, Jennifer Tilly, uh, G.W. Bailey, who was in the, the Police Academy movies, uh, William Winden, Terry Copley, Richard Dimitri, Teresa Ganzel, Mike Starr, Rick Rosevich, Jack Carter, Colleen Camp, Rance Howard, Ron's dad, uh, Brian Time to Die, James, Taylor Ariarag Negron, Art Da 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 Matrano, Barry Z Z Z Zodiac Sign Sobel, and Bill, you're a bad man. You're a very bad man, Mumi. Oh, uh, <laughs> Fletcher just called her a festering bowl of dog snot. They just don't write them like that anymore. Evil thugs here playing Jacks and Cat's Cradle. We also had some intense footage of them playing Candyland. Oh, hey, look, everybody. Michael Richards is back. Hey! Hey! hey. Oh, I love to be here. Hey! Hey! Ooh. Hey, come on, hold it down. UHF is on. Shh, shh. So, do you have fond memories of our two months in Tulsa, or do you wake up every night screaming? No, I like Tulsa. <laughs> I'll tell you, you can get a big mansion there for $100,000. Remember, we were there, there was some kind of difficulty that occurred with the oil situation. And everyone was selling all their big homes in Tulsa for nothing. They had cleared out. I thought the property values just went down because we were there. Oh, they may have. <laughs> you know, I think you may be right. <laughs> Actually, we were, the big, we were the big highlight for Tulsa. Everybody came out. Uh-oh. There it is. Epiphany. Oh, you stung that really good. I like this. There's the teeth. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, you did. Yes, now I'm going. Now I'm in action. Yeah. Yeah. Now one of these stuntmen is going to go flying right about there. Oh, there he goes. No! Look at that. Whoa. It's a good thing this warehouse was filled with big empty cardboard boxes, huh? What are the odds? Now, now you got hurt in this scene, right? I never did. No, you did. You got, you got your, your rib bruise or something? No, the no? mop got scratched. Oh. Now here we go, this part. This was the first day of shooting for me. Was it? Yes. Oh, we were having some fun here. 
Oh, look at, oh, doing your own stunts. Ouch. I had it padded. Oh, gosh. Yeah, we blocked all this out. Remember when we did this, Jay? Now, I remember you were lobbying hard to put in a fart sound here. But I vetoed it because I didn't want to do fart jokes. Because this is a classy movie, Jay. Yeah. Oh, here, here we go. I love that. Now, this predates the whole body piercing craze. We were way ahead of our time. Jay, you are wonderful. Because I said, then I'll do this, then I'll go over the desk here, then I'll go here, then I'll go under, and we blocked this whole movement out. I think it took all afternoon to shoot. But you were open to it. You were open to it. Now, what is Philo doing here? We're not quite sure. But it looks cool. What is he holding there, an egg? Look out! They're coming through the window! They're coming through the window! See? Told ya. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is a quintessential nerd, isn't he? We finished the very first draft of the screenplay for this movie on July 11th, 1986. It was 232 pages, which is just a tad long for a light comedy. I must have weighed 155 pounds. I, I'm, not, I'm not that thin now these days. Your hair is three times longer than that, Al. See that concern? I bought it. Another acting moment. Now this is where you wanted your big crane shot, Jay. Yeah. Which, uh, I guess we didn't get it. <laughs> At the very, very end of shooting, we actually got a cherry picker for one day. What time of night was it when we shot that, after we had gotten all of the crowd work? This could be... It's like four in the morning. Probably so, probably four in the morning. What I like about this scene is your commitment. You worked out, you really got yourself in shape for this one. You look great, Al. Look at that body, I can't believe it. We shot this in January 1989 at the uh, Sweetwater Ranch in Agua Dulce, California. Middle of winter and uh, it was freezing. Everybody else was dressed up in winter coats and parkas. And they thought I was freezing too because you know, it looks like I'm bare chested, but of course you know that, that suit is like foam rubber and it was like wearing a wetsuit, so I was fine. Now this was an expensive shot here because this was a, a antique costume that we blew up. <laughs> Good effect. Oh, that's such great stuff, Al. That's your best, man. Thanks. That's when you're at your best. I like the sound effects in the background. What animal is that? They can't see you. They can't see you. You're so clever. I'm stealthy. This Rambo makeup was done by the KNB effects group, Robert Kurtzman. Greg Nicotero and Howard Berger. I remember how depressing it was to take that suit off. Yeah. <laughs> I want something to eat. <laughs> Watch how I move with okay, you here. Yeah. Watch his moves. <laughs> Coming up here, the guy in the helicopter rides booth was supposed to be a cameo for Sylvester Stallone. Our producer, Gene Kirkwood, had produced the original Rocky, and he was a friend of Sly's, and we thought that maybe we could twist his arm, but I guess he had to do something infinitely more important that day. Now, this was not really a working gun. The idea was we'd put flashes at the end of the gun later, so it would look like I was actually shooting, but our post budget got so tight that we wound up having to beg Orion for more money just so we could put in the gun flashes. And here's our stock footage festival. No, we actually blew all this stuff up. You just weren't there that day. Oh, second unit, huh? This is it. This this makes a statement about the world. 
just gone completely out of control. That's what we were setting out to do. Wow. Hmm. Is our hero gonna get it? I don't know what's going on, but oh my goodness, here. Cartridge and all. This is what I love about it. <laughs> he really caught that thing. That gun shoots a cartridge. <laughs> I think he really blew up for that. He and Kevin studied at the same studio. He wanted to be blown up, really blown up. <laughs> he blew up real good. Yeah. Comedy through set design. I chose on that shot too be getting into my seat. This is great. That's a way to go to work. Oh, good thing I took those helicopter flying lessons in college. Coming up is R.J. Fletcher wearing a Channel 8 helmet with a logo beautifully done in black electrical tape. Love those props! The helicopter was great. Chad liked to have that helicopter. <laughs> Who wound up with that helicopter? I like the, the little the little balls around our window. Look. Now watch these reactions. You got such great reactions coming up here. It was so cold when we did this. There you go. <laughs> we blew up the ghost. <laughs> There's another one. This is perfect. That's so great, Al. <laughs> <laughs> Who is this guy? I'm your worst nightmare. This is this was very funny. This is great. Listen, I can see you guys are pretty busy. How about if I just come back later? Forget it, pal. <laughs> he really you hit me in that. <laughs> I told him to really give me a hit. Did you? For, a, a couple of, of the for earlier takes, he wasn't hitting me enough. You know, he just kind of tapped me. I said, give it to me. Oh, look at that. He gave it to you. <laughs> Commission. He brought a wonderful intensity. Yeah, look. Ooh. Red rum! Red rum! And there for no particular reason whatsoever is a reference to 1980's The Shining. I always wondered how they knew they were in the closet. We had a whole scene explaining why, but then look we figured people wouldn't These care. These are real acts now, right? Yeah, that's um, Uncle Sam and the Dancing Stomachs. No, that, that's dubbed in. His original voice sounded nothing like that. A lot of these extras were kids from the Oral Roberts University, which I could see from my hotel window. We had that whole scene where you're saying, give me light, give me light, and that's why all those cars were rolling up with their big headlights and everything. We, that never made it to the final cut. Uh, now might be a good time to talk about uh, how he pitched the movie. Uh -oh. uh, we, st we started in 1986, I think, and uh, shopped it around Hollywood for two years. Um, Although we actually did get paid to uh, develop the script. And then the, uh, the film fell into the hands of Darren Getz and Kevin Breslin, who were working with producer Gene Kirkwood. And uh, they liked the script. And we had this weird meeting with Gene Kirkwood at the old Nicky Blair's on Sunset Boulevard, where he told us, you guys are going to be on the set next month shooting your movie. And uh, the meeting was just unbelievable. And after the meeting, we were outside on the sidewalk, and we were just cracking up laughing, saying, can you believe that? Was that guy for real? And then a month later, we were on the set shooting our movie. My goodness, I look awful. <laughs> There's Billy. 
I wish my head could just pop off my shoulders and I could have held it in my hand and still maintain that speech and then put it back on my shoulders. We can do that nowadays. That, we they, can they do have that, the, huh? They have the capability for the that. The teeth are nice and big, aren't they? That Tulsa group did really well. They were good. Oh, oh, you know what? I got to go. I got to go in my car. I'm going to get a ticket. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I'll well, thanks for coming. Back. Bye. Oh, okay. All right, bye. I'm bye. So I'm going to get a ticket. Uh, some of the stuff that got cut from the original, original draft of the script, uh, there were other characters like Morris Beckman, Uncle Harvey's accountant. There was Roger Dixon, who was the Bullrama Casanova, who was always hitting on Terry when George wasn't around. Uh, there was Roxanne, who was Noodle's dominatrix girlfriend. This set here is actually at OETA Channel 11 in Tulsa at 811 North Sheridan. Uh, the, the carpentry crew spent over a week building this new set, which you don't ever really get to see because we just decided to stay on a tight shot of RJ. Um, I'm, I'm told that OETA used the set for a couple of years and then they chopped it up and made bookcases out of it. I think this whole scene is a little reminiscent of the 1957 Andy Griffith movie, A Face in the Crowd. Don't you? So, you comfy over there, Jay? Yeah. I'm watching the movie. You know, when we made this movie, we thought we were making just a fun little low-budget comedy, but uh, when Orion tested the picture at test screenings, uh, it, it tested so well, it got the highest test scores since their original Robocop. So all of a sudden they thought, you know, this is the movie that's going to save the studio, and they, they put it out in the middle of one of the biggest blockbuster summers in history, uh, up against Batman, Lethal Weapon 2, Ghostbusters 2, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Do the Right Thing, License to Kill, Dead Poets Society, and When Harry Met Sally. Uh, it came out uh, on over, about 2,000 screens. It was a, it was a wide release. Uh, and unfortunately, because of the heavy competition, only lasted about two weeks in the theaters. Al, would you get me a donut? Um, yeah, sure. You can keep talking, Jay. Okay, um... Oh, this is the part that makes me so happy. Oh, I'm, oh, I get so happy when I watch this. I'm so happy. You know, it's just, uh, I can't. Oh, thanks. Yeah, where was I? Oh, yeah, when we found out that the movie was greenlit, it was kind of good news, bad news, because uh, it meant that I had to turn down being Michael Jackson's opening act on the European leg of his tour that summer, which was kind of a bummer. That would have been fun. I think the biggest disappointment on UHF was uh, that our expectations had been built up so much. I mean, after the high test scores that the, uh, the movie got, uh, the executives at Orion were, uh, were touting me as their new Woody Allen, as like their new comedy artist that they were going to stick behind and develop a whole career with. And uh, we were kind of buying into the hype a little bit, I think. And then after the first weekend, when it just grossed $2.1 million, uh, <laughs> that all kind of went away. I was kind of a ghost in the hallway at Orion. I would walk uh, through the hallways and secretaries would avoid eye contact. I felt like I had just gotten fired and everybody in the world knew but me. It was like, you know, dead man walking. The, the month prior to the movie coming out, uh, I, I'd never been treated that well in my life. As a recording artist, you know, I get some pretty good treatment, but, you know, for a month I was a movie star and that was, that was pretty amazing. I would be... Uh, in four-star hotels, eating at the best restaurants, and all on the uh, company expense account. And every morning there'd be like a bowl of fresh strawberries by my bed. And then one morning I woke up, and there were no more strawberries. 
The strawberries were gone. Yeah, I'll give you some strawberries. Thank you, Jay. I like strawberries. It's a sad story. Is this movie still going on? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, for about a year after UHF came out, I would re-edit it in my head every night before I went to sleep, trying to figure out what, what could we have done different, what could we have changed to make it more popular. And, uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, the, the plot was pretty standard. It was a, you know, basically a cookie-cutter plot. I guess if I had it to do over again, I would have uh, you know, parodied the conventions of these kinds of plots. You know, I, I guess Wayne's World did that pretty well a couple of years later. So uh, let's, let's go over the timeline of the movie a little bit, because that's fascinating. Uh, the first day of shooting was July 18th, 1988, and we shot for eight weeks in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Then we went back to L.A. and edited for a while. And we shot our fantasy sequences like you know, Rambo and Indiana Jones and uh, Town Talk and uh, I think Conan. We did all that around Southern California. Celebrity mud wrestling. Yes, all that. Uh, and then we, we edited for around six months at Cinecore. And th this is the late 80s, uh, so editing on tape was kind of a new deal. We, we pitched that to Orion, and they thought that was just, you know, too wacky. So we wound up doing it the old-fashioned way, editing it on film, uh, you know, with a razor blade on the old flatbed, which seems unbelievably archaic now. If you wanted to add a frame to a scene, you had to go and find it in the trim bin, you know? Wait just one minute. What do you think you're doing? We did it! The station's time! Woo! Whoopee! Now, that's from a cherry picker, that shot. You got your cherry picker. I got my cherry picker. You know, for a station that was hurting for money, they sure had a budget for fireworks. And a cherry picker. And a cherry picker. There it is, right there. See, it's going up. So the movie came out on July 21st, 1989, although there was a sneak peek of it the week before on the 14th. The movie grossed a little over $6.157 million in its initial U.S. theatrical release. Uh, of course, the movie only cost $5 million to make, so it's not like they lost their shirt on this movie. R.J. Fletcher, am I am. Here's Nick Hagler, the FCC guy. He was a really good actor. I wonder what he looked like. wonder what his face looked like. That would have been good to find out. But you know, he, he's such a good actor, you don't even really need to see his face. That's the mark of a good actor. He's pulling it off. One thing I don't like is movies that spend all this time building up the bad guy into this guy you just really hate, and then they don't follow through with a proper retribution at the end. So that's why we have RJ getting it over and over and over and losing his money and losing his job and being kicked in the crotch. That's what it's all about. We even had a scene in the original script where Richard and RJ are fighting over their suitcase full of money and it opens up and the, the money goes everywhere in the crowd. And uh, we just thought it was a little bit too, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Did I do that? Oopsie. A proud moment for John Paragon. Here's Philo's big departure scene. Now, his transformation was originally supposed to be a background joke. Uh, we thought it would have been funny just to see it, you know, way off in the distance as kind of a throwaway gag. Uh, but the effects done by the Kyoto brothers were turning out so great that we decided to let it play in close-up. Uh, the Kyoto brothers, of course, also did um, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and they did the Large Marge effect for Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Thanks, Uncle Harvey. Have a nice flight back to the coast. No! No! That's scary. Oh, we got some more time to kill. Hey, Jay, you want to call Victoria Jackson? Yeah, I'm going to go out and get another donut. Okay. okay. Aren't you R.J. Fletcher? Yes. Oh, 
Congratulations, you really pulled us through. Hey, George, I want you to know that I'm mighty proud to be a part of your team. Hello? Vicky? <laughs> How you doing? We're here in uh, L.A. We're doing the commentary for UHF, and we thought maybe you'd uh, say, uh, say a few words. Okay. Well, I love being in UHF, and it was an honor. Okay. Well, nice talking to you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Have you ever been on a commentary before? No. I, I've never seen a DVD before. So do you have, do you have any uh, any specific uh, scenes that you uh, that stick in your mind, or uh, any people that you worked with? Um, we were in a, in Tulsa, and we were in a hotel, and um, Fran, you know, she talks funny. You know, she has a funny voice. I hadn't noticed. Yeah, and um, I also thought it was kind of odd that you cast a funny talking blonde and a funny talking brunette, but anyway. But I was very honored to be cast in your movie because I heard that I beat out Jennifer Tilly. <laughs> and uh, David Spade. Was he up for my part? Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> didn't I have to sit on your lap in my audition? Everybody did. The well, producer, everybody. So I wanted to do... I wanted to do... I got a call coming in. Oh, should no. I take, should I take it? Hold on. That's uh, Victoria Jackson on Call Waiting. Um, um, uh, Al? Uh-huh. Do you have to go? my second husband, the policeman. Oh. Oh, they're playing uh, the Gone with the Wind scene now. Remember this one? Oh, I love the ending scene. I was your first on-screen kiss, right? That's right. Well, Emo was first, but that was, uh, we cut that out. Anyway, so I wanted to do Vivian Lee justice, you know, because she's my hero. Uh-huh. And, um, and so I was very nervous about it. And it was very exciting. I love that story. And, <laughs> wait, wait. And you're a great kisser. Oh, thank you. No, you are. <laughs> so anyway, I just want to tell everyone that I had a huge crush on you during the movie because, you know, you're supposed to do that. It's in the contract. Yes, it's part of the job. It's all about the movie. <laughs> It's all for the art. Any, anything else? Any other story? Yes. I wanted to say that I thought I was really fat when we were filming it. But now looking back on it, I looked really good. <laughs> and also I wanted to say that I was the straight man for the movie. Uh-huh. Everybody else was wacky. But you, were, you were the emotional center of the movie. Uh, for the first time in my life, I was like the normal together person. It was quite a stretch for me. <laughs> so I think I should have gotten an Oscar. I do, too. <clears throat> Maybe they'll have a new category someday of delayed Oscar. <laughs> Retroactive Oscar. Yeah. People going, what were we thinking? <laughs> exactly. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for being part of this commentary. You're welcome, Al. I'm making scalloped potatoes, so I better hang up. Okay. Talk to you later. Okay. Goodbye. Love you. Bye. You know, UHF has really developed quite a cult following since its release in 1989 and a lot of reviewers now look back at it kind of fondly. But when the movie first came out, man, we were just eviscerated by the critics. Well, what do you know? Happen to have a couple reviews right here. Now, let's see, uh, Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times calls it a depressing slog through recycled comic formulas. Those who laugh at UHF should inspire our admiration. In these dreary times, we must treasure the easily amused. <laughs> He goes on to call it a very unfunny movie. I did not record a single laugh during the running time of the film. It's routine, predictable, and dumb. Real dumb. Well, gee, thanks, Roger. 
What, did I run over your dog or something? Jonathan Rosenbaum from the Chicago Reader says, The movie proves to be awful by any standards. Feeble, corny, and labored in script as well as direction. Other than that, he liked it. He liked it other than that. Uh, Rita Campley from the Washington Post calls it, A comedy so dumb you're embarrassed to laugh. Yankovic co-wrote this bit of B-movie Americana with sidekick Jay Levy, directing with gong show finesse. The dumbness just never stops. Just buying a ticket lowers your IQ. Phew, man. She also says I have Art Garfunkelicious hair. You think I have Art Garfunkelicious hair, Jay? No, I do not. Well, see there? She doesn't know what she's talking about. Oh, also from the Washington Post, they love us there. Uh, Dessen Howe calls me a very sick puppy and says, um, UHF is not a uniformly funny experience unless you have to wear a bib and tend to laugh at anything, such as sudden gusts of wind. Well, I thought that was our target audience. Uh, Newsweek said that my face resembled a baby's bottom to which wire-rimmed glasses and a caterpillar had been attached. Uh, one, one critic even mocked me for listing my acting credit as Al Yankovic instead of Weird Al. Oh yes, he's a serious actor now. Uh, Rex Reed's head almost exploded because he had to review my movie and the Yahoo Serious movie at the same time. I even made Johnny Carson's monologue one night. He had some kind of joke about how um, uh, the bad news was that Sir Lawrence Olivier had just died, but the good news was that Weird Al Yankovic was coming out with a new movie. Uh, we got so pummeled by critics that um, I, I remember one reviewer almost had to apologize for giving me a good review. It was like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, guys, but I, I, I kind of liked it. I thought it was kind of funny a little bit. The, the one good review we got in L.A. was from TV critic David Sheehan. I mean, it wasn't a glowing review, but at the very end, he just kind of mumbled, don't miss it. And of course, the next day, Orion started running newspaper ads with huge, bold type. Don't miss it, says David Sheehan. Uh, I got a little depressed after a while from just getting beat up every day in the press, and um, Emo Phillips really cheered me up. He sent me this newspaper editorial by a writer in Chicago. I can't remember his name, but the article really meant a lot to me. It said that movie reviewers should review comedies with their backs to the screen and just watch whether or not people are laughing. Uh, if they are, the movie works, and if they're not, it doesn't. Period. Well, based on that criteria, I would have to consider UHF a great success, because every time I've walked into a room where people are watching the movie, they've been laughing, unlike a lot of Hollywood blockbuster comedies I've seen over the years. Well, regardless of what the critics said and what the opening weekend grosses were, a lot of people really like this movie, and it's definitely built up a cult following. Uh, whenever we play clips from the movie on the big screen during my live concerts, people chant along with their favorite lines like it's the Rocky Horror Picture Show or something. I know a group of fans that even put on a full-blown stage production of UHF with homemade props and wardrobe and everything. A lot of fans have told me that it's their number one all-time favorite movie, and, and some of them have seen it literally hundreds of times. You know, having that kind of an impact on the fans well, means a lot to me. A whole lot more than a good review from Rex Reed or Roger Ebert. Although, you know, I still can't get over losing the Best Picture Oscar that year to Driving Miss Daisy. That was the biggest blow. Okay, well, that's it, everybody. Thanks for watching. Keep in touch. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.